and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. This podcast centres around the word history, so we thought we'd look at the etymology behind that word. First seen in the late 14th century, meaning relation of incidents, this comes from the old French histoire, meaning story or chronicle. The Latin word historia, meaning narrative of past events, account or story, and the Greek form historia meant an account, a record or a narrative. It's derived from the word historian, meaning a witness or expert, or to find out and inquire. In Middle English, the word is not differentiated from the word story, in the sense of a narrative record of past events. The phrase to have a history, as in having an eventful career or a past worthy of note, was first seen in 1852. And to make history, to be notably engaged in public events, was first seen in 1862. Well, today I am really excited to welcome to our Word Up podcast a fabulous, inspiring history teacher, Lindsay Bruce. She is an assistant head for teaching and learning. She's contributing also to the OUP Key Stage 3 and 4 history series. She's from the Midlands. Lindsay, a huge warm welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So Lindsay, tell us a little bit about you. You chose teaching as a profession, but why history? What was the passion behind that? Well, I'd always loved history at school. It was the subject I was best at, but I didn't know anyone that had gone on to study history at university. I didn't really understand what that meant. It felt really abstract. Like, what what did, what did, would you do? Mm. So I first did nursing when I left school. I was awful at it. And then having seen people at university go through like a kind of arts degree, I, I would, had the courage to go back and do that. And then teaching just felt, you know, that I would be able to pass on that passion to other people, but then show them what they could do with it. I mean, obviously, careers, education has come on so much, but that was a big driver, getting to talk about history all the time and make other people see that they could do something with it. Brilliant. I found a really fab quote from you. You said, language is the key to a date, a job, a better price on a car. It's also a way to express your love, anger, frustration. And as history teachers, we can help with that. And that just made me really smile because I think as English teachers, we often feel that we're carrying that weight of communication, you know, facilitating communication for our young people. But as a history teacher, it was just lovely to read that. Yeah, I feel really passionately about that, that, you know, yes, there's lots we have to get through, like every, and especially with new GCSEs, every teacher likes to do the old moan of like, you know, the teacher Olympics, how much content's in your GCSE. And yeah, there's so much Teacher Olympics, that's a brilliant <laughs> phrase. <laughs> there is so much to get through, but actually teaching children to communicate, you know, when you think about what we cover in history, the controversial topics, the people, you know, we, we focus whole time periods on individuals. So to think that language isn't important when you're talking about people, when you're talking about people's lives, about legacy about culture like it's so important and I feel that no child should be leaving school not able to to communicate themselves and, and argue their point and, and in history god that's our bread and butter isn't it we're always mm. going on about how we teach them to argue and we can get so focused on that being about how they argue in paper but having the conviction to have a judgment and stick with it and back it up will get you far and like you say whether that's getting a good car or, or a good date you know we've got a part to play in that Brilliant. I think you'll win their hearts and minds if you if we start with that idea about getting a good price in a car and a good date. <laughs> Amazing. So in particular in history then, tell me about vocabulary. What's the importance of teaching vocabulary for you in history? I mean, I think that there's lots of 
much better people than me that have spoken about this. But I think that from when I think about it, because you can make this really big and edgy Twitter can make you feel like it's a job in itself, mm. teaching literacy and vocabulary. For me, there are the two strands. And in history, I think almost we have it a bit easier than other subjects. You know, we've got really clear first order concepts. And that is the key terminology, isn't it, that we build everything on. And then the other strand is the exam language. And I think that, you know, it's that constant, that battle between the two. You might think that they really understand democracy and, and all the things that are attached to that, that prototype of democracy and how it changes. You know, Christine Council talks about these concepts being slippery, that, they you know, you just think you've got a hold of it and then something happens um, and it changes it. But then they go into the exam and they can't, the children can't write and they can't decipher the question. And you've tried your hardest to think of every way that, something might be asked. So I think that I kind of swing between importance. I've not yet managed to marry the two of this fine balance of teaching both. Sometimes I think it's really important that I focus on that terminology, those concepts. Mm. And then other times it's that vocabulary for the exam and for writing. Such a fine balance to try and get the two to marry up perfectly. I'm really hoping that somebody might listen and say they've managed to do it and tell us how it's done. (laughs) Well, do you know what? We'll we'll listen out for those those tweets, those emails. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because it's it's almost that kind of approach where we're moving from speech to writing and we're trying to embed on an oral level and using RC to really embed that understanding of key terminology within your department area, but how young people are able to use that language to convey what they mean and, and embedding the, the right vocabulary in the right context, in the right manner before we get to writing. And making sure we can say it before we can write it. Yeah, the say before you can write it, I think it's really, and, and it's hard, isn't it? Because there's so much debate and time so tight about how much there should be that discussion. And I know I certainly feel oh, a little bit nervous when somebody says, I'm going to do a debate with a class. And I think, oh, what I can see happening is two really bright, confident, precocious children leading that debate and everyone else just sitting, watching and pretending to listen. So I think that, you know, it's 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 really difficult, isn't it? It's a really important skill to develop, but I think that there needs to be a lot more training. I felt like I was never trained to do that. Yeah. Question I can do, I can really get them to bounce ideas off each other and I can build up orchestrate in that discussion and recasting, you know, what Douglamov calls that right is right. But we've all just been doing for years, haven't we? Like, no, what else and more and more. But I think really getting children to a point where they can discuss and argue their points using that vocabulary because we know that sometimes they can do one or the other isn't it they can they know the content they know their opinion but it's just too big a step to to argue it the right way so I think that there's lots of strategies that that are helpful for that I do also think though and and one thing that I think gets confused often I don't know what your thoughts are as an English teacher teaching in like a place with a regional accent with certain little lovely quirks of language Mm. that there's this sometimes a drive to stop children speaking the way that they should for where they come from and I really feel passionately as like a Scottish person in England with a child growing up in Wolverhampton with like the best little black country accent mixed with some insane Scottish words in there that I want her to sound like where she comes from I don't want her to apologize for being absolutely yeah yeah. Again, that balance. And I know I've taught, you know, it is a, such a fine act, balancing act, isn't it? That 
we should empower children to sound like they sound. Yeah, and we mustn't get confused. You know, that whole code switching that's in the latest word gap report, we mustn't get confused about accent and dialect yeah. and actually the grammar regionalities that we must ensure we've got the standard English form for. That's different because otherwise we're we're disenfranchising young people from that professional language that they need to pass exams and they're going to need in the world of work. Yeah. But yeah, we mustn't get confused with, with accent. Absolutely. And really vital to see for young people to see something of themselves in those that they study and those that they're hearing and listening to. I just wonder whether, um, you know, we are surrounded by amazing orators and, you know, there's a whole plethora of awesome Netflix and YouTube documentaries out there for us in history, isn't there? So listening to amazing historians, I mean, I'm old, so I love Mary Beard. Mary Beard's brilliant. <laughs> I really love to listen to her. But, but maybe that, you know, hearing historians and academics talking is a really key part of pulling up the oracy skills and the, and the vocabulary of our young people. Yeah, I think it comes under that, like what Jean Gros spoke about in the first word gap report about that caught or taught, you know, that actually explicit teaching is is so important, especially, you know, you know, I'm sure we'll talk later about, you know, those children coming up into year seven and and the impact of COVID and, and that deficit with language. But I think the caught is really important, just that exposure to written historians but also watching them but I think again it just depends on where your your children are the students in front of you that there are going to be some students that have watched Mary Beard they watched the revamped civilizations they might have watched the original you know they're really comfortable with that or they've watched a few Lucy Worsley's in their time with like their mum and dad yeah but there's going to be some students who for them Mary Beard is fin- fantastically weird isn't she yeah. what we love about is that she looks like her long hair and like and the way she talks and how excited she gets about yeah. Pompeii and the way Lucy dress up to talk about Anne and Henry and her great like way with language with as adults with perspective with a confidence really to be able to enjoy that and see it for what it is that Lucy Worsley is definitely somebody you'd want to have a glass of wine with because you know she'd pull out you know the Tudor dress <laughs> but I think that can be really overwhelming for young people so I think it's about understanding that you are for some teachers in some schools, that's it is exposure. For the first time, you're exposing children to this that they might they're not going to catch it straight away. It might really turn them off. So I think we've got a responsibility to know the children in front of us and not think I need to expose them to this all the time. It, it needs to be kind of planned, and you need to allow them to to kind of feel a little bit embarrassed, you know, when they're watching these things. Because and over time, that will change. Yeah. So you're talking there, and I'm now thinking about horrible histories and how much my own children just adored the vile Vikings and the rotten Romans and all of that. Yeah. Do you think that that kind of immersive story-led world of history is a valuable part of your toolkit? Yeah, and I think that I really do, actually. And I think that I've been guilty in the past of doing what a lot of history teachers and history graduates do, which is be a little bit snobby about historical fiction, for example. You know, they'll be a bit... Well, that's not really what happened. And actually, you know, who cares? Who cares if Mantell gave like the best representation of Cromwell? All I know is, is that after reading all of the, the, the books, even though the mirror and the light almost killed my wrists, that I definitely <laughs> feel more of a connection to Cromwell. That, and, and it's exactly what we talk about in teaching, isn't it? Building those prototypes of things that when I read a source now or I see something or a documentary or anything, on that period, I'm more likely to engage with it because of that narrative's been there. I think that definitely giving children, using historical fiction as a way to get kids into literature, I think reading for pleasure, although it's not something that many history teachers, I imagine, see as their responsibility, 
we, we can. You know, and I was giving them talking to students from Warwick University, the PGCE students, about this and about using um, historical fiction. And one one lad said, well, I had used Pride and Prejudice, but there was a bit that I didn't use because, you know, Mrs. Bennett was talking about being vexed. I didn't think they'd know what it meant. And, and it showed the importance, again, of knowing your children because the children I teach and the language they use, seeing that she was vexed with Mr. Bennett, they would totally have got that. That would have really spoken to them. And then... They might have been more inclined to engage with whatever unit we were teaching or pick up a copy of Pride and, and Prejudice. But I think horrible histories, as you mentioned, are, are great. And I know some teachers, again, can be a bit scathing. Yes, it's a bit simple, but it's meant to be. It's meant to hook the children, mm. you know, share it with them, use it, make them make it better. But I think if we can get kids reading and we can get them into and getting an idea of time periods and context, like, there's just absolutely no harm in that. I guess it's about bringing things to life, isn't it? So that it feels real because, you know, I, I'm fascinated by history, but probably not at school because it felt, you know, so far removed from my own experience. Mm-hmm. But the minute, you know, I read about Mary Anning on the beach in Lyme Regis, because I grew up in Dorset, I was, I was a bit more hooked about that because it felt a bit more real or Anne Frank and yeah. and listening and hearing her from her own words what that was like. Yeah, that personal experience is so crucial, isn't it, to as a hook for engagement? Yeah, and I think that we we you know there has been a kind of move away from and and, and you can see it kind of swinging back. You know, you get you get trends, don't you, in education? And I think the the knowledge approach was is absolutely right. You know, every child should be exposed to to the knowledge and have what they need exactly what we were talking about at the start so they can walk into a room and think right well I grew up in a council estate and I never went skiing and all these people in this top job seem to be talking about that but you know I went to a club once or I studied this so I can blag it a little bit I think that we we owe children that They, they should be exposed to everything but I think taking the time to pause and yeah introducing them to those individuals and those stories is time well spent yeah, agree. Totally agree. So the word get report that you you're involved with, you wrote some of the history elements to that, didn't you? How did that inspire you? And then how did you use that to translate into your own practice? I think the biggest impact it had on me, I had I kind of got into it because my head teacher had asked me to take on the role of like creating a reading culture. She wanted a whole school reading initiative that wasn't just, you know, a kind of laminated posters on doors which are important but you know it couldn't just be that we had to just change the culture and so it kind of coincided with with this report I also at that point I had my daughter in 2016 and was seeing the the impact of language on her and reading and and vocabulary and something that I felt maybe I didn't really have growing up it came together perfectly but I think the biggest impact I had on my classroom practice was when I considered the Matthew effect and that where I had thought that I was supporting students by differentiating for them I recorded myself and I spoke about this quite openly that I'd you know we'd had a a kind of program in the school and I recorded myself teaching the same content to a kind of top set and to a lower set and you know the top set were getting these rich explanations they were getting that vocabulary we were building the concepts I was pushing them a little bit and the lower set was getting the right then darling what do you think perfect you know everything it was so basic and so not giving them what they needed and it wasn't I I thought I was doing the best thing I think we were all in that same yeah what a fascinating thing to do yeah and that that was the big thing where I thought well actually you know that first report doesn't it talks about was it 47 percent of students come into year seven without the language that they need that they require and 
she's like well I'm just making this worse we were just widening the gap unknowingly it was all done in love wasn't it we were just making it worse and so that was a big thing for me when I really had to look at my classroom practice and again it coincided with my school becoming like knowledge rich and really changing the curriculum so it all came together at the right time for me to be able to really focus on literacy in the classroom. That's such an interesting thing to do to record yourself and then listen back and almost you know to have that written transcript about the challenge and expectation high expectation of those more able students that's fascinating What what an interesting idea gosh I'm just thinking what that would look like if I was doing that. It really was when you listen to it and you think, oh, goodness, you know. And then and then for a lot of these students to kind of generalise, some of them, they might um, have been diagnosed with special educational needs and they might have needed support. And that support, again, I mean, and this is a whole different podcast, but your role is, a, is not just a history teacher, it's to prepare them for life. And I wasn't even preparing them for that because not everyone's going to take time to listen and say, well done, sweetheart, that's wonderful, even if it really wasn't, and have mm. such low expectations of them. It was really... Yeah, it was it was very revealing. Mm. That's similar to actually what my, Matt Pinkett was saying the other day when I did a podcast with him. He was talking about how, you know, don't praise boys just because they get their pen out. <laughs> you know, they've got to achieve the praise. But yeah, that's a really good point because we're, you know, we we want to focus on the good. Yeah. <laughs> want to really encourage and, and pull them up. But yeah, there has to be that balance, doesn't it, between rewarding what, what is reward worthy. Exactly. And especially then from the business end as teachers, if we want them to go into an example and have that intrinsic motivation to do well, there's no dairy milk waiting at the end of it. You know, there's no pat on the head. It's just you've got to want to do it because it feels good and you know it's good for you. Yeah, brilliant. What about for our primary schools and, and that whole link with primary? And I know that one of those key key recommendations from the October 2020 report is about, you know, what do we do at transition? What does it look like to move from year six to year seven for our young people in terms of vocabulary and that avalanche of new words that hit? So in terms of history, what do you think the best ideas are for transition and supporting our primaries? Well, I would say that first off the bat, I think we've been handed a bit of a gift with COVID. You know, we've learned to work remotely, haven't we? So whereas Mm. I know back in like maybe 2013, 2014, there was a big drive of like history departments trying to get together with the primary schools and where you want to teach national curriculum. And it was just, it was like herd and catch, you know, you couldn't get everyone together. It was just so difficult. Whereas now, you know, it would be much easier to get everyone on a Zoom or a Teams call. So I think as a history teacher, trying to get heads of department or your SLT link to be in, in contact with the primary schools and be like, right, when you got them back and you realised that you needed to adapt the curriculum, what did you have to leave out? What concepts did you really build? What did you focus on? Because then that should really inform what we are doing when they come in. I think that anybody who's mm. pick up that curriculum as it was last September or the September before is probably going to feel like it's a bit of an uphill struggle isn't it because they're just that deficit exists yeah so I think definitely linking with the primary schools I loved in the the report the big booklet from the school you know the big word booklet I thought that was a good idea I think done well it could be really useful I think if you're just going to give kids hundreds of words in a booklet and say to parents there you go yeah and we've all experienced that you know, it was a bit hit and miss that parental engagement and remote learning I think you know you're on a hiding to nothing then but I think really carefully curating. I think what is it, Jean Gross calls it that core um, corpus. And I love that, like the idea that there are just these things that we know they need to know. Yeah. And and we want them to learn them and be familiar with them so we can we can build on that when they come back. Yeah. I think on a whole school level, we just need to really use the expertise in primary. I think that the Times ran that article, however, misleading last week about the children coming up 
practically illiterate into year seven. So good phonics, you know, needs to be there, good understanding of how to explicitly teach language. So it's not just about us as history teachers saying, right, you need to know what analyse means here and how that's different to PE, for example. Mm. And you need to know first order concepts and understand how revolution changes, for example, and what that looks like in different contexts. I think we need to understand that there's going to have to be a little bit of explicit teaching of actually how to read but that's huge. And I, and I have to say, having a child in reception during this lockdown, you know, I am in awe of primary primary school teachers. Absolutely. It's like magic the way that, I mean, big, big love to Rosie from the Read, Write, Inc. videos would have been lost without her. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that I have in the past and I've read lots of out there about literacy of like, well, yeah, we'll just, we'll talk about morphemes and we'll talk about this and but most teachers don't know that. And to just say, you're going to have to do it. I think there's a lot of training. And then there's the other issue on top of that of you're going to have lots of teachers starting in September in their NQT years who have very limited experience. So, mm. you know, can they take that on? So I think building bridges with primary school teachers for all those years when they've said, as secondary teachers, we've said, what exactly do they do anyway? You know, this is what they do and they do it really, really well. Yeah. They teach them to read. And that's huge. And we really need to try and drag that up into the, the secondary setting. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating to have Key Stage 2 colleagues working in Key Stage 3 and vice versa to see how, you know, we can join that gap. And I think probably you're right, you know, never more so than now. Definitely. I think Margaret, Margaret Meeks wrote about it in the 70s, you know, about in her great book about how to learn to read where she spoke about that, you know, if your kid's doing something at school, you might not like the phonics programme, you might not think it's good, but the last thing you should be doing is belittling what they're doing at school because it creates this really negative idea of learning. Mm. Just do what they do, slag it off when your kid's in bed and roll your eyes behind their back, but, but commit to it. And I think I've been thinking lots about how we actually need to apply that to what the kids did in primary school. We need that continuity because what we're saying when they come up to us is, well, we're, we don't do that now. So how does that make them feel about six years of education? Yeah. We just say, yeah. we, that's not what we do now. That's not important. Yeah, that's that's a really, really interesting point. I often think that, you know, going back to that big booklet idea, we're talking about that core corpus. It's really crucial, isn't it? But then that spider's web of words and and, and the semantics around that mm-hmm. is what sort of grows grows your knowledge base and grows your the schema of how you know how we link words together and that crucial intrinsic spider's web that we want kids to be building and layering in them in their minds around language yeah to unlock the world of learning when they get to us and I'm sure that actually academic vocabulary in particular is going to be a really crucial element of that unpicking some of those keywords what on earth does it mean to review or analyze you know what is a conclusion because you know unless these words are really thought about the possibility of learning it incorrectly is quite strong yeah I think that with everything I think with with reading getting kids you know reading for pleasure making them understand extending their vocabulary making them understand what you're teaching them you need to give them the confidence to make it mean something to them because it's that connection that that works isn't it and I think all too too often we feel as teachers we're kind of laboring aren't we like well I'm trying to do literacy and I saw this thing on Twitter and they broke down the word and like all these, my kids can't do that. And oh, maybe I should be doing that. And actually it just distracts from what your children need. And I think that that relationship that we have with our classes, we know what they need. Yeah. 
That's such an important point because I think as teachers, you're right. And Twitter is a, a fabulous tool, but mm-hmm. also can be quite a, an oppressive cloud of information that you can panic. But actually, you're absolutely right. You are the, the expert in the room because they are your classes yeah. and your context and you know what they need best and to have that strength of knowledge and, and professionalism that you are making those right choices. That's really, really crucial for us to remember and hang on to, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I think we can try and do too much. And I've definitely been guilty of arguing that we should do more than I think is probably right for a lot of children. And that's not me arguing that some deserve it and some don't. It's just about the learning journey, isn't it? The goal's the same, but how we get them there, the steps have to be different. They can't be the same. Absolutely. The connection, we're all aiming for that point where the penny drops for a child and they get language and they love language and they see how it links together. But if we try and do that too soon Mm. and try and start breaking things down and hammering them about prefixes and suffixes, which I see as an adult, the importance. But I've also seen when you try and spend time teaching that, instead of just getting them to learn the words, rate their confidence on them, and you try and push the rest too soon, you just lose them. Yeah. We've all done it with, you know, when your tiger mum moments, why don't you try reading this? Go on, go on, read this. Yeah, it's true. I'm, I might have been given Oliver Twist a bit too young. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it did turn me off. Yeah, definitely. You're right. It's about that lifelong learning, isn't it? And teaching for 10 years doesn't mean teaching the same year 10 times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And actually, that's that's a really good point for me, because, you know, I've taught for 20 odd years. And only now, really talking to you, does it make me think, why are we not joining up our English and history departments a whole lot more? Because we need Victoriana, London, Dickensian, mm-hmm. Smog filled learning you know we need to know about a whole plethora of historical context in in English and you guys are busy doing it and we're not joining up yeah thinking I, th- I think that everyone's so attached to their curriculum aren't they and again maybe we've given the gift of COVID that we're all having to say right well I know you've always taught this text in this year and I know you've got a cupboard full of them and it's perfect timing and yes history you've always liked to do this the industrial revolution in year eight but there's so much historical scholarship out there and teachers are, are that's personal CPD. And if schools give departments that CPD time to really build up their subject knowledge, then, you know, they could change the curriculum and you could find a way to teach the Industrial Revolution higher up the school and still make it challenging. I know that, you know, I, my husband's an English teacher and regularly we will be sitting at the table and we'll say, oh, I taught a cracking lesson on the trenches today. You know, it's like, I'll explode and I think, well, you know, your history department's going to have to unravel all those misconceptions. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> yeah, what have you done, you know? You can't just show them Blackadder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that pooling resources, I know, like, my trust that I work for is really good at taking history teachers and doing big context lectures. And I think that's a really great place to start. I do have, and I can't tell yet whether it's a bit naive, I do have the dream one day of, like, a curriculum that, yeah, we follow it through and it is coherent and that those links are really explicit I think that that would just solve so many issues yeah I agree let's do it Liz. let's start school and let's link English art history music drama they're so intrinsically linked we could be using them to much better effect I think absolutely I couldn't agree more I think um, and I think there are examples of it being done and I think that it's just about being brave isn't it and then it's hard there's so much to do in school so to say we're going to take this curriculum and replan it you know you could just imagine after a year of covid your heads of departments faces when you tell them that they're redesigning <laughs> everything yeah it's 
that's really true what's what's a context lecture that sounds interesting so just what you were saying you know like you might be be studying a text that requires like a really good understanding of not just you know victorian white chapel and like the the horrible dark alleyways but the democracy culture immigration and key thinkers so it's just that kind of almost quite like an a-level type lecture on the whole context of the period so that the students really yeah will just understand where it's been set beyond that kind of surface of it was really dark and dingy and science yeah. technology and those key themes from the, the the era that sounds a fab idea I'm off to plan that into my next my next scheme of learning. <laughs> I love that idea. Really nice, yeah. Well, that and Teacher Olympics, they're, they're my key takeaways. I love the idea of Teacher Olympics. <laughs> I'm trying to, just, trying to decide what my event would be. Oh, there's so many. Who's got the most content? Who's got the biggest workload? <laughs> I think the biggest workload, we're all, we're all vying for the top space. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. Really fascinating. And I wish you all the best for the coming term ahead. Thank you for giving up a little bit of your Easter to talk with us. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me. Um, it's been great. And the series has been fantastic. So to be part of that, it's been great. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Lindsay. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.